0: Okay, we're up to John chapter 9 and 10 this evening. Um, every time I'm, I'm preparing, I keep thinking that actually this is better than last time. There's so much here. And, and this evening, the, uh, there is so much depth um, to the Gospel of John. I remember um, in our introductory um, look in the first session, we were just talking about uh, what some scholars have said, that they, they see the Gospel of John as um, such a, a deep pool that an elephant could wade in it. But it's also so accessible that a child could swim in it. And they, they use this kind of analogy um, that, that wherever you are in your walk with the Lord, there's something here. Uh, it's just so incredible as we go through. Um, last time, uh, if you remember, we were looking in chapter... Um, chapter 8, and we were looking at the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, where Jesus had gone up to the Feast of Tabernacles, and it was on the last day, the eighth day uh, of this celebration that Jesus had stood up in the crowd and he declared himself the living water, which obviously must have caused, pardon the pun, a bit of a stir. Um, he was... Doing this as they were reading, as they would have done traditionally from the scroll of Isaiah, uh, about the fact that the Holy One was now in their midst. And Jesus stands up and says that he is this living water. And again, the Feast of Tabernacles, they remembered their wilderness journey in and everything. That was what the, the part of the feast was about. And specifically, they had this, this part of the process where they would go down to the Pool of Siloam, bring back some water. Um, and uh, on the lo- they would do that every day of the seven days of the feast. On the eighth day, they would still send a priest down to the pool. Uh, the priest would come back up with an empty uh, container in remembrance of the fact that the Messiah had not yet come. And they were looking forward to it. So it was like kind of unfulfilled, unfulfilled for them. And then Jesus stands up in their midst and says, I am the living water. You can see the impact that would have had. The Jews clearly recognize what Jesus is saying here. And as a result, they actually um, try and stone him for blasphemy. Now, they couldn't technically do that because under Roman law, that authority had been taken away from them. Um, somewhere around about 6 AD, they'd lost that right um, to administer capital punishment themselves. Um, and there's a whole uh, interesting thing behind all of that. Uh, that The Jews actually thought at that point the, the prophecy, the word of God, had been broken um, um, because uh, of a prophecy back in the book of Genesis. But i uh, save time. I won't go into that this evening. But chapter 9 is now going to open with another miracle. Um, this is actually going to be miracle number 6 of the 7 that John actually records for us. It's quite surprising when you think of all the miracles Jesus did, John only actually records 7 Uh, We're going to look at that in just a moment, but also we're going to see, uh, particularly this chapter, like a a masterclass in how to witness uh, and also what we can expect back from the people we're witnessing to. It's quite interesting. This is not so much preaching. Preaching, if you're going to preach, you really want to be using the Word of God as your basis uh, and particularly the law because we're told in Psalm 19 it's the law of the Lord that converts the soul. So you can use whatever tools you want, but if you want to be effective, you want to use the law of the Lord because that's the one the Bible says is the one that converts the soul. Um, now, the miracles in John's Gospel, uh, just to have a quick look at these again, this is a bit of a recap because we've gone through most of these now. Um, the first miracle we saw back in John chapter 2 was the water turned to wine. And we talked there about the fact that we have these uh, these water pots that were originally designed for that which is holy, they were, for the water of purification. Um, they were now empty, they were stone, and we see them at the type of our own hearts, that we were made for something holy something pure uh, but we become empty we become like stone uh, but Jesus takes his empty water pots fills them and they bring forth something that's of fruit as it were and you see the typology there very clearly um, the second miracle was the healing of the nobleman's son that was in John chapter 4 um, and really the basis there uh, we find it is faith in God's word um, this, this life that was at the point of death um, is, is healed not because of any wonderful thing other than the fact that this, this um, nobleman has faith in the words that Jesus speaks. If you remember, he, the miracle is done. He doesn't go home, the nobleman, to see his son until the next day. He could have gone home that night, but he's got so much confidence in the words that Jesus spoke. Uh, and again, in our own lives, we see this incredible uh, parallel that all we need is faith in that which Jesus has done. Um, the third miracle was the healing at Bethesda. Um, and again, we see very much our, our situation there. We have somebody who's completely powerless to help themselves, uh, spent a lifetime looking for a way to solve this predicament he was in. Jesus comes at the appointed time, and uh, again, it's by his word uh, that this man is imparted the strength to stand Uh, and that's the way it is with us. You know, we were powerless to do anything about our predicament. We were just like that man, uh, as it were, crippled, unable to do anything. Jesus comes, speaks the word, uh, and by his word, again, uh, is put into us strength that was not there before. Um, the fourth miracle then uh, was the feeding of the 5,000. We see there very much a, a practical demonstration of God caring for the, the real needs that we have. God is interested in the day-to-day things of our lives. And Jesus was, was feeding these people. They needed real food. But obviously there's a spiritual side of that as well. That There was the, um, uh, the element Jesus later will go on to say that I am the bread of life. Uh, and drawing this parallel that we need to, in a sense, feed on him and on his word. Walking on water was the the next one in john chapter six uh, also um and they're very much it's about keeping our eyes on jesus um, jesus is able to keep us above or below the waves um you know peter walks out to jesus and he's fine to start with because he's looking at jesus the moment he takes his eyes off he starts to sink you know and we when we start to see all this this kind of put together as a picture we realize what the lord has done for us where he's brought, brought us to the fact that he'll provide for us and he'll keep us as well And then John chapter 6, the one we're going to be looking at this evening, the healing of the blind man. And again, we see so much uh, that's parallel to our own lives in this situation. Um, so we'll obviously say that as we go through this evening. The seventh one we'll see in John chapter 11, uh, which is the raising of Lazarus. But all of these miracles that, that John records for us, these seven, and he could have chosen any number and he could have chosen any miracles, but these ones he gives us because they really do tell our story for each one of us. Uh, this is where we've been, this is the predicament we've been in, and, and as we see this evening with this uh, healing of the blind man. Okay, so let's uh, get into the text. We read uh, John chapter 9, starting verse 1. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. Now, this uh, miracle that we see, or the, the, this type of miracle, healing of blind people, is actually the most common miracle that occur, occurs through all the Gospels. Um, and again, there's, there's a lot of uh, analogies there uh, we see to us uh, about us being blind. I mean, this man had never seen things before. He didn't know. He'd been blind from birth, so he didn't know what color was. He didn't know what a sunrise was like. Um, you know, and that's just like we are. Our well, reference, if you like, is 1 Corinthians um, chapter 2, verse 14, where we're told that the ma- natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. Just as this man was blind and he could not understand. You, you, I mean, I've got a friend, actually, uh, a physio, who's a fantastic, fantastic person uh, and really deeply loves the Lord, but he's been blind from birth. Never seen things, never been able to understand. We talk of colour, but what's that like to somebody who's never experienced it? We talk of the things that we can see, that, you know, you can touch things, but can you really truly understand what they're like without seeing them? And that's what it's like for somebody who is dead spiritually before they come to that place where that blindness is lifted spiritually. Um, So there's a lot of parallels that we see through this. Verse 2, we read, And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, here we see um, a question that's very much drawn from Jewish tradition, uh, and that was that the sickness was a result of sin. That was the, 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 the understanding they had drawn from their tradition. Now, in one sense, that is true, because all sickness is a result of sin. If Adam had not sinned at the beginning, none of us would be sick. It's quite as simple as that. Um, but their uh, understanding was that specific sins were the result of Uh, or sorry specific sicknesses with the result of specific sins uh, which is not the case however we can't just say that without actually mentioning um, that in scripture we have some divine laws given just as we have some laws in nature we have the law of gravity we understand that we see the way it operates uh, there's also a divine law of sowing and reaping uh, and this is as sure as the law of gravity is Uh, it's kind of codified if you like in Galatians 6 verses 7 and 8 where we read Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. For he that sows to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that sows to the spirit shall of the spirit reap everlasting life. Now there's some interesting examples of this in Scripture. Um, There's an example in Acts chapter twelve, verse twenty three of Herod there, um, and we're actually told immediately the angel of the Lord smote him because he gave not he gave God. So he gave not God the glory, and he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. Now, this is somebody who refused to give God the glory, uh, and he, he's claiming himself as deity effectively in the situation, and God deals with him. And sickness is brought about as a result of that sin. So there are occasions that God does actually do that. Um, there's another example in 2 Kings chapter 5 um, with uh, Elijah's servant, um, uh, uh, Gehazi, um, who was the one that he actually received the leprosy, the name, and was cured from, if you remember, because he went after uh, Naaman and said, "You know, give me all your clothes," because if you remember the story, uh, he was going to offer it to, to Elijah, and Elijah said, "No, no, no," um, and we have that that account there. And as a result, God then strikes him with this leprosy, which will be uh, to him and his family. Uh, we're told from that point. Uh, we also have other examples. Um, Jeroboam in 2 Chronicles 13.20 was actually struck by the Lord, struck dead by the Lord. Uh, Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira. First uh, Samuel 25, uh, Nabal as well. Uh, and there's also an interesting allusion in First Corinthians chapter 11. It's talking about communion and, and celebrating the Lord's Supper. It talks about those um, that effectively uh, were sick and sleep among them because they'd not observed the Lord's Supper properly. Um, they, they, not you know, they, they uh, not understood the significance or the importance of it. It's very interesting. It appears from these things that God, uh, using the words of Chuck Nisler, God will take you out of the game. Um, now, it doesn't mean necessarily you're going to lose your salvation. Well, in fact, you can't lose your salvation. We're going to get on with that this evening. Um, but you could lose your inheritance and you all sorts of things. But God clearly has done things like that in the past. Um, again, just coming back to this law: whatever, uh, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows that shall he also reap, and we can be absolutely certain of that. If we do sow to our flesh, we will reap corruption. It's not something that you can sow to your flesh. You can do something um, to satisfy a fleshly lust, whatever that be, and then think, oh, I think I've got away with it. No, 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 it's just as short. As you plant a seed in the ground, that will bring forth something. And so it is in that situation. In the Old Testament, we're actually told in the book of Hosea, for they, talking of Israel specifically, but for they have sown the wind, they shall reap the whirlwind. Same principle. And we find it throughout God's word in many different uh, ways and shapes. Okay, Jesus then answers and says, Neither has this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God shall be made manifest in him. I must do the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night comes when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, that's the way we have it in our on our bibles it's, it's separated by verses but of course verses were not in the original they've been added uh somewhere around about the 12th century or so um g camel morgan actually suggests this is the way those verses sh- should better be rendered from the way the greek structure is um his suggestion is that we should read it this way because reading as we've just read it uh, let me just go back to that other slide again um, it implies, Jesus says neither has this man's man sin nor his parents but that the works of God should be made manifest in him in other words, the reason this man is sick is because God wanted to use him as an experiment to make a point that doesn't quite sit right okay? so I, this is what G. Campbell Morgan suggests as, a, as an alternative understanding, same wording but just separating the parrot or the sentences up slightly differently, Jesus answered neither has this man sinned nor his parents full stop okay so in other words this man's sin is not the result of uh, sorry, the man's sickness is not the result of of uh, his sin or his parent's sin or anything to do with that and then jesus goes on but that the works of god should be manifest in him i must work the works of him god that sent me while it is day now, that makes a lot more sense to me. God is simply saying, look, this man has this, this blindness, but God is going to use this to bring glory to him. God didn't give him the blindness or whatever else. We, we need to understand that sickness, as we said, is a result of the fall. But ultimately, we are the result of poorly copied genes, blueprints that have been corrupted down through the ages. Uh, that's why sickness exists. And also because of man's greed. You know, we, we spray fields with things to make crops grow bigger and faster and better. And then we find that we get all sorts of things as a result of that. We don't know, in truth, how much harm we do to ourselves out of greed. Um, And then Jesus goes on. Um, Let's just uh, pick up another idea here. Because Jesus then says, The night comes when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. What is Jesus saying? Is he saying that there is a time coming when the light will be removed? Yeah, that's exactly what Jesus is saying. So when... Is that time to be? Was it when Jesus returned to heaven? Well, no, because Jesus did return to heaven, but the light didn't go because the light remained through the church. The church has been commissioned, if you like, to carry on being that light bearer in the world. That is a situation, though, that will not continue forever. We know this from Matthew 5. Jesus said there that you, talking to his servants, his believers, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it gives light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Okay? Uh, Philippians uh, chapter 2, verse 14 and 15 also say, uh, Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, perverse nation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So we've been given this mandate to carry on bearing that light. There is a time coming, though, that that light will go out uh, from the world's perspective. In 2 Thessalonians 2, um, verses 7 and 8, we read there, For the mystery of iniquity does already work, only he who now lets? That's King James language. That means prevents. He, who now prevents, will prevent until he be taken out of the way. So, the, this, this person who we're going to is the Holy Spirit, indwelling the church, is preventing the mystery of iniquity being revealed in full until the time that he's taken out of the way. Verse eight then says, And then shall that wicked or wicked one be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. So there's going to come a time when the we get to the, the point of the rapture of the church that the Holy Spirit indwelling the believers will be taken out. And again some people say, Well, what about the people during the, the tribulation? Well, people will be saved but the light's gone the clarity that we have now um you know the evidence is all around the evidence is overwhelming but there's going to come a time during the tribulation that actually god will give people over to that state of mind that they want to be um and people will know that god is causing all these things to come upon the world uh, and they still harden their hearts there will be a blindness if you like Uh, that light will have been removed um, interestingly, I think there was uh, a dress rehearsal of this back in 167 BC. Now, this is something we're going to pick up on later in the study today because um, it actually uh, crops up later as it happens. Uh, many of you will be familiar with the Jewish feast of Hanukkah. Um, the situation there was simply that um, this chap, Antiochus Epiphanes, who's part of the old... Um, what came out of the Greek Empire of Alexander the Great. Uh, He marches against uh, Egypt on his way back up. Uh, He stops off at Jerusalem, wants to kind of take over things. The Jews rebel, and it becomes this this war that lasts for a little while. Uh, As a result, he then ends up desecrating the temple, offering a pig on the altar and uh, all these kind of things. Uh, Jesus refers to that as the abomination that causes desolation. It's mentioned in Matthew, obviously, Jesus in Matthew 24. Sorry, mentioned in the book of Daniel. uh, Jesus mentions it in Matthew 24 as well. Um, But what is interesting is that the Feast of Hanukkah is is celebrating that when the Jews then recaptured the temple, um, they then relet their menorah, this lampstand. They didn't have enough oil to make it last. We'll we'll deal with that in a little bit because we're going to come on to that. Um, But the interesting thing is, during this time that this foreshadowing person of Antichrist was there, the light had been extinguished. The light had gone out. Now, I'll let you do with that what you will. I just think that's quite interesting. um, That during that time of darkness, if you like, um, the light, this menorah light, was extinguished during that period. Okay. In um, Leviticus 24, I just had to throw this in because we were doing this last Monday at at Deal in our Bible study there. Okay. Chapter 24 just says and the Lord spoke unto Moses saying command the children of Israel that they bring unto thee pure oil olive sorry pure uh, oil olive beaten for the light to cause the lamps to burn continually without the veil of the testimony in the tabernacle of the congregation shall Aaron order it from the evening unto the morning before the Lord continually it shall be a statute forever in your generations he shall order the lamps upon the pure lampstand before the Lord continually Now, what's interesting is the menorah, if you know anything about it at all, uh, you've probably seen it, the seven-branch candlestick, uh, it was made uh, of just one single piece of beaten gold. Now, interestingly enough, in the book of Revelation we're told that the menorah is representative or idiomatic of the church jesus said there the mystery of the seven stars which thou saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands the seven stars are the angel of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which thou saw are the seven churches so there's something uh, mystical if you like with the the menorah representative of the church now again just going back to that passage in leviticus um we as a body, the church, is made of um, one body, just as the menorah was made out of one piece of beaten gold. Well, gold itself needs to be purified, it has to go through the fire, and the dross is taken off the top of it, um, and then it's beaten into, into shape. Um, the lamps also, um, oh, sorry, I should also say, um, the lamps were to burn continually. Well, that's how we should be as the church. We should be burning continually, continually giving off that light. Uh, notice also the way they were to burn. They we're told they were to burn uh, without the veil of the testimony. That they weren't to be in the Holy of Holies. They were to be out in this, And again, the, the menorah was the only part in the tabernacle that bore any light. There was no windows there. And that's the way it is now. The church is the only thing that God has left to bear light. And it's not in some closeted place that nobody can see it. As it says, it's interesting the way it phrases it here because um, although the majority of the congregation would never go into the tabernacle as such, it says without the veil of testimony in the tabernacle of the congregation. implies in the midst of the congregation. That's where we are to allow our light to shine. And notice what Aaron's job was. Well, Aaron was the high priest. His job was to, to tend the wicks, if you like, and make them burn brighter. And that's what our high priest does for us. Okay. Sometimes if we're not burning bright enough... He'll trim those wicks to make us burn a bit brighter. Now, that could be a painful process, but God does it because he wants us to bear that light. It's interesting in um, the book of Proverbs, it just says there, but the path of the just is as the shining light that shines more and more unto the perfect day. Now, make of that of what you will, but I think that's an implication there. And as we get closer and closer, we'll be, be, be burning brighter and brighter. Now, part of that is because the world's getting darker and darker. So the light seems to be brighter as well. I just wanted to read this to you because I think you may not be able to read the print. I appreciate it's small, but uh, I'll read it to you. This is something I read last week and it just just really resonated with me because I know so many Christians that are going through, if you like, a, a wick trimming uh, experience at the moment. God is working in their lives. Uh, and this is something I happened to just read one morning last week from uh, Spurgeon's Morning and Evenings, as it were. And uh, just uh, taking a verse from Zechariah 6, verse 13, it just says, He shall build the temple of the Lord and he shall bear, bear the glory. And Spurgeon's comments are, Christ himself is the builder of his spiritual temple and has built it on the mountains of his unchangeable affection, his omnipotent grace and his infallible truthfulness. But as it was in Solomon's temple, so in this, the materials needed making ready. And that's us, obviously. There are the cedars of Lebanon, but they are not framed for the building. They are not cut down and shaped and made into those planks of cedar whose odiferous beauty shall make glad the courts of the Lord's house in paradise. There are also those rough stones still in the quarry. They must be hewn thence and squared. All this is Christ's own work. Each individual believer is being prepared and polished and made ready for his place in the temple. But Christ's own hand performs the preparation work. Afflictions cannot sanctify, excepting as they are used by him to this end. Our prayers and efforts cannot make us ready for heaven apart from the hand of jesus who fashions our hearts aright as in the building of solomon's temple and this is a quote from scripture there was neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron heard in the house because all was bought perfectly ready for the exact spot it was to occupy so it is with the temple which jesus builds the making ready is all done on earth when we reach heaven there'll be no sanctifying us there no squaring us with affliction, no planing us with suffering. No, we must be made meet here uh, all that Christ will do beforehand. And when he has done it, he shall be ferried by a loving hand across the stream of death and brought to the heavenly Jerusalem to abide as eternal pillars in the temple of our Lord. That was fantastic. I absolutely just love that. The whole idea, and you see that type, that, that, that when they were building Solomon's temple... All of the materials were prepared before they got there. All the work was done before they were brought to the Temple Mount. And that's what the Lord's doing with us. We may be going through hard times. You know, um, something else, uh, Sim sent me a fantastic email, just talking about uh, the hammer and the nail. You know, the nail can be very um, resentful of the hammer, continually pounding and pounding and pounding, (coughs) until it comes to that understanding that actually the hammer is just a tool in the Master's hand. Uh, and actually what's happening is that the master is using that hammer to put that nail into the place that he wants it, to make it fulfill the task that he's got for it. And when the, the nail sees that, it doesn't view the hammer in the same way because it sees it as part of that, that process to get it where it needs to be. And, and so it is with us in our life, with the experiences, with the problems, the challenges and difficulties we face. And, you know, take, for example, the menorah. One solid work of beaten gold. One of the branches is being beaten. May not understand where it was going or what it was going to be. If it could have seen the end picture of what part it was going to play, how much would it have changed its understanding of where it fitted in? And so with us, God has so much more for us than we can possibly imagine. You know, in eternity, things that are yet to come, and God is preparing us now. You know, we should. This is why James tells us that we should consider it joy when we experience these kind of things. Okay, so let's uh, get back on track. Verse 6 tells us, When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, and anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. Now, of course... um this is not a license for us to go and do the same if we decide we find somebody that's blind we think this is a great idea no jesus isn't setting this as the formula and one thing you will notice is that every time jesus does a miracle he does it a different way uh, and i think that's one of the, the ways he's saying you know don't try and look for a formula it's not about a formula it's about the one that's doing it and of course jesus didn't need to do that he could have just spoken the word and he could have seen so why did jesus do it well i think to pick a fight as we'll, we'll see uh, what we're going to find, uh, it was actually, verse 14 will tell us when we get there in a moment, that he did this on the Sabbath day. Uh, and we'll comment there when we get there in a moment. Uh, tradition actually said it was unlawful to make clay on the Sabbath. Apparently you could spit on a rock, that was okay. Uh, but if you'd spit on the dust, that was apparently making clay, and therefore it was deemed work. So anyway, we'll comment in a moment. And he said unto him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is, by interpretation, sent. And he went his way, therefore, and washed and came, seeing. Uh, interestingly enough, the Bethesda, the pool of Bethesda was closer, but Jesus sends him to the pool of the sent one. Uh, that's what Siloam effectively means. So he's sent to the sent one to wash. Uh, also interesting, um, Siloam, um, I should actually mention, of course, the, the faith and obedience of this man. I mean, he's not... He doesn't know much about Jesus at this point uh, other than the, the, obviously the disciples and other people were looking at him assuming that his blindness was a result of his sin. Jesus doesn't judge him in that way. Um, and he has the faith and trust in this person to go and do what he asks. Uh, there's a parallel there with Nahum, of course, the, the Syrian, who, uh, although he kicks up a bit of a fuss, eventually goes and washes in the Jordan, does something that, that seems strange. Why do this? But again, it's that faith. Um, Silur actually fed a great reservoir there was enough water some commentators actually said it was beat like a big swimming pool that was there at the time um, in other words there's ample water at the sent one for all who will humble themselves and wash there oh, just quite an interesting uh, deduction from, from those things verse 8 says the neighbours therefore <laughs> and they which before had seen him that was blind said is this not he that sat and begged some said this is he others said he's like him but he said i am he therefore said they unto him how are thine eyes open this is just fantastic yeah this is the man who could not see now can see and those that could see can't work out who he is it's it's just kind of a real reversal you know we need to be aware that when we come to know the lord when we see the world will not recognize us there's a change that's taken place and they're thinking but you used to didn't you used to be you see the Verse 11, and he answered and said, A man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes. He said unto me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and washed and received sight. This is just fantastic. This is an undisputable witness. He's just telling like it is. Um, You know, he doesn't try to explain how this happened or why it happened. And so often when we are witnessing to people... We'll try and get every detail and try, you know, he just says, look, a man called Jesus made clay, anointed my eyes, said to me, go to the pool, and wash. I went, and now I can see. That's really it. Um, effect, all he's doing is pointing people to Jesus, and that's what we need to do. Sometimes we try, try and take on too much to explain to people. And as I was commenting earlier, you can give people all the proof you want. Proof's not really what they're looking for. They need to have their eyes opened. Uh, only by going to Jesus, as this man has experienced, that will happen. Verse 12, they said to him, where is he? And he said, I know not. They brought, uh, sorry, they brought to the Pharisees him that was aforetime, sorry, that aforetime was blind. Now, I think this is interesting as well, because we see this so often with people. This man's blind. He says, look, I am he. So they're surely accepting by now that this is the person. And what do they do? Do they accept it? no they take him to the pharisees to see what they've got to say you know i see it with uh, with with marla my daughter um you know somebody at a church after the sunday will offer a biscuit and she'll look to Mummy and daddy and see you know can i have a bit? That's, that's what she calls a biscuit um you know it's kind of like is that all right type thing well actually probably it's not a good example because if anybody offers her a biscuit she'll, she'll take it but you, you understand what i'm saying you know children will look to their parents for is that okay But it doesn't change when we grow up because somebody says something and we go to that authority that we have. That person that we trust or, as in this case here, the Pharisees, the religious leaders. You know, Is that okay? How many times have you spoken to somebody in another church and talked to them about the things of the Lord, the things of the word of God, and they've gone, "Mm, I'll have to go and have a word with with my my minister about that. Why won't they accept it? For the same reason they don't accept this. Because they're not prepared to take a step on their own. You know, people always want verification. They want to play it safe. And ultimately, Proverbs twenty nine twenty five uh, sums it up and talks about is the fear of man. Verse uh, 14 says, And it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. John kind of puts that in, always as a little aside. But really, that's the reason that we went through the whole of the making clay business. Jesus specifically did this knowing that it's going to cause a reaction. As I said earlier, it was deemed to be something that was unlawful on the Sabbath day to make clay. Nothing that the the law had said, but this is what tradition had brought in. Verse 15, then again, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He said unto them, he put clay upon my eyes and I washed and do see well we're starting to get a condensed version now you start to sense this man is kind of like well i've already told you you know the pharisees are now saying so how did this happen now we just get he said unto them he put clay upon my eyes i washed and see that's it as simple as that verse 16 therefore said some of the pharisees this man is not of god because he keeps not the sabbath day ignoring the miracle that's taken place ignoring the witnesses there He says, how can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And there was a division among them. Well, we shouldn't be surprised because that's what we're going to find. You know, when our eyes are opened and we are before people, some may listen to what we've got to say, some will reject it, but there will be division. And Jesus will find, we'll continue to do that. We'll look at some more scriptures in just a moment. Verse 17, they say unto the blind man again, what sayest thou of him? Um, That he opened." That he hath opened thine eyes? He said, sorry, what sayest thou about him that he has opened thine eyes? In other words, what do you say of Jesus? Um, He said, he's a prophet. He'll give you the reason in a minute. And he says, but the Jews did not believe concerning him that had been born blind and received his sight until they called his parents of him that had received his sight. In other words, they're saying, I don't think you were blind to start with. Now, this is stupid. This man has been probably in the same place year after year. Remember, he's been blind since birth. But again, proof is not enough as I was saying earlier people don't want proof because you can give them all the proof they want you know it's that age old um, you know, don't confuse me with facts my mind is made up and so many people are in that kind of position and uh, so anyway they, they call his parents um, verse 18 uh, So, sorry uh, verse 19 and they ask him saying so they ask the parents now is this your son who you say was born blind How then does he now see? In other words, it's impossible. If he was born blind, he can't now see. You know, they're trying to find some way around this. Notice what's going on, though. There's an attempt here to discredit his testimony by saying, well, you weren't really blind. And we'll find that, you know, when we come to the Lord, when our eyes are opened and we're out there and we're talking to somebody saying, well, look, Jesus made me see. And they'll come up with some reason why they'll discredit our testimony. Now, there's nothing this man could have done about his situation. But we need to be very careful that we don't do things or allow things by which people will use to discredit our testimony. Because so often, Christian ministries are brought down because of something that has happened, been in the past or whatever, that suddenly comes to light. And, and people will jump on that to draw attention away from actually what's happened. See, they've got the debate on now whether this man was actually blind or not. Not on the fact that he can see. And this miracle has taken place, and that is so often what the world will do. They'll find some way of trying to discredit your testimony. So you need to be aware of that. Verse twenty: His parents answered them and said, "We know not. Uh, sorry, we so we know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. Okay, that's good. And then, but then they kind of, kind of play safe. But by what means he now sees, we know not. Or who has opened his eyes, we know not. He's of age. Ask him. He shall speak for himself." I don't need to comment because John tells us. He says, These words spoke the parents because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he, obviously Jesus, was the Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, said his parents, he is of age, ask him. This was effectively to be excommunicated, and his parents weren't prepared to go to those lengths to stand up for their son in this situation. This is incredible, but exactly, again, what Jesus said we could expect. In Matthew 10, Jesus said, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth, I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that takes not his cross and follows after me is not worthy of me. He that finds his life shall lose it. And he that loses his life... For my sake shall find it. Incredible that his parents would just throw him into this situation. Anyway, the Pharisees then, verse 24, again called the man uh, that was blind and said unto him, Give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. Now what they're doing by saying, give God the praise, is effectively putting this man under oath. Saying, you've got to tell us the truth now, and this is what we want you to say. Well, he kind of goes around the side of them and says you know whether he be a sinner or not i know not one thing i know that whereas i was blind now i see fantastic answer what could they say to that it's just brilliant you know and that that statement that that witness is irrefutable you see that's the way it is for us if we are to witness for jesus we just need to know i was blind now i see the rest of it is just details But they are the facts. That is all we need. If you know that, you can witness to anybody successfully. Because as you'll see here, some of these people believe, some of them don't believe. Well, that's fine. The Lord will be working in those lives. But to witness, you just need to let people know who the one is that has done this work. Point them to Jesus. Don't try and explain it. This this man doesn't explain it. And yet he has this, this testimony that has gone on now for thousands of years just simply by saying, Jesus did it. Look at Jesus. Then said they to him again, he, he must be getting tired of this now. Uh, what did he uh, to thee? How opened he thine eyes? And he answered them, I've told you already, and you did not hear. Wherefore would you hear it again? Will you also be his disciples? Probably didn't go down all that well. Then they reviled him and said, Thou art his disciples, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke unto Moses, as for this fellow, we know, not, whence, uh, we know uh, not from whence he is. You see, if they truly were Moses' disciples, they would have known that Moses wrote of Jesus. Jesus was the I Am that spoke at the burning bush. He was the rock in the wilderness. We looked at that last time. He was the only door to the tabernacle on the side of the tribe of Judah and all these things. You know, he was the only sin and trespass offering for mankind. You know, The writings of Moses actually offer some of the most compelling arguments that Jesus is the Messiah. So they're claiming that we know Moses, and you know, well, no, they didn't really know what Moses had written. They were so into their legalism that they'd missed what Moses was saying. The man answered and said unto them, "Why herein is a marvellous thing?" This is the one of the most wonderful pieces of sarcasm you'll find in Scripture. The man answered and said unto them, "Why herein is a marvellous thing that you know not from whence he is, and yet he's opened mine eyes. For now we know that God, uh, sorry, now we know that God here is not sinners." But if any man be a worshipper of God and does his will, him he hears. Since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. You see, this man's basing his, his understanding of who this man is on the fact that throughout the Old Testament, God was the one that promised to open the eyes of those that were blind. Um, some references, if you want to note them, Exodus four eleven, Psalm 146 verse 8 Isaiah 35 verse 5 and Isaiah 42 verse 7 just some God said he would open the eyes of those that were blind and now in their midst is is this person, Jesus who is opening the eyes of somebody born blind and this man is saying look, this is the evidence this hasn't happened since the world began so now this man is opening the eyes of somebody born blind this man must be of God okay notice uh, that phrase that he says there uh, now we know that god hears not sinners some people have got a problem with that saying well god does hear sinners well uh, actually psalm 66:18 uh, says that if i regard iniquity in my heart the lord does not hear you know people make the assumption that that you can pray to god any time well you can do that because, as if you regard iniquity in your heart, God will not hear. You see, I think that is, is very much a, a, a true statement, that God hears not sinners. There is, of course, one exception to that. And that's a repentant sinner. That is the exception. And that's what we're told in Psalm 34. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and save such as be it of a contrite spirit. You see, God resists the proud, but give grace to the humble. They answered and said unto him, Thou was altogether born in sins, and dost thou teach us? And they cast him out. So now they've been kind of like chided a little bit because he's kind of poked a little bit of fun at them. They were not very happy at all, and they now cast him out. And they make this comment, you know, do you try and teach us? Well, actually, that's exactly what this man was doing. And that shouldn't come as a surprise because, again, in God's Word, Psalm 119, verses 98 and 99, we read there, Thou... Through thy commandments has made me wiser than mine enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. It's just just wonderful that God will actually make you wiser than those that purport to teach you through his word. And that's exactly what's happening here. Um, Adam Clark made this comment, which I thought was quite good. He said, uh, on that phrase, they cast him out. He says, they immediately excommunicated him. As the margin properly reads, you know, the marginal notes in Scripture uh, drove him from their assembly with disdain and forbade his further appearing in the worship of God. Thus, a simple man, guided by the Spirit of Truth, and continually uh, steady in his te- continuing steady in his testimony, utterly confounded the most eminent Jewish doctors. And you and I could do that. You know, we don't need to have theological degrees. To witness for the Lord. This man was doing this against the, the religious leaders of the day. Simply by pointing to Jesus and saying, I was blind, now I see. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, just pause I think that's lovely. This man had been cast out by the establishment. Church of the day, didn't want to know him. Jesus finds him. And said unto him, do you believe on the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talks with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. That phrase there, do you believe on the Son of God, effectively, he would have understood that, the Jewish understanding of that, and we actually have reference back in John 1, 49. of the question is, do you believe in the Messiah? That's what Jesus was saying to this man. And he's saying, Who is he, Lord? And Jesus is saying, it's me you see the man had heard his voice uh, speaking to before but this is the first time he's looking at his face you know just think what a few hours this man has just gone through he's just received his sight he's been blind since birth he's now seeing things he's never seen he's processing all this information he's just been dragged to the Pharisees and made to try and explain what's going on but now beyond any of that he's now looking at the Messiah with his own eyes. One of the most beautiful things um, that I think I've I've heard is the the testimony of, of Fanny Crosby. You may have heard of Fanny Crosby, famous hymn writer. She was blind from birth and she just made this comment. I love this. And she just says, it seemed intended by the blessed providence of God that I should be blind all my life. And I thank him for the dispensation. If perfect earthly sight were offered me tomorrow, I would not accept it. I might not have sung hymns to the praise of God if I had been distracted by the beautiful and interesting things about me. If I had a choice, I would still choose to remain blind. For when I die, the first face I will ever see will be the face of my blessed Saviour. I just, wow. Verse 39. And Jesus said, For judgment I am come to this world, that they which see not might see... And they which see might be made blind. blind. And some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said unto him, Are we blind also? Jesus said unto them, If you were blind, you should have no sin. But now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. In a word, it's all about humility. Uh, Jesus said, Luke 18, verse 14, For everyone that exalts himself shall be abased, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted. You know, there's going to be many that remain spiritually blind because they won't admit that they cannot see. And interestingly enough, um, yeah, Paul, or Dr. Luke, should I say, at the end of uh, the book of Acts, makes the comment referring, quoting from Isaiah, that these people, um, they had ears, they just wouldn't listen, um, and their eyes, they have they closed, is what we read there. Okay, so that takes us through chapter 9 into chapter 10. The narrative effectively continues. Uh, Some scholars argue that we've jumped on three months in time here, maybe. I'll explain that when we get there in a moment. Um, Jesus is now going to use the analogy of a shepherd, sheep, and a sheepfold. And we find that's commonly used in Scripture. We're very familiar with Psalm 23, um, the shepherd's psalm often uh, referred to. Uh, Really, it's the, the sheep's psalm. Um, this chapter, I believe, also contains two of the most important verses in the Bible. So we'll look at those as we go through. So, John chapter 10, verse, uh, verse 1. In fact, the first six verses start now. Jesus refers to those who have rule over the sheep. So that's what we're going to look at to start with. Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that enters not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbs up some of the way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he that enters in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. You know, we have many today in the sheepfold of Christ's church who seek to rule over the sheep. And yet many of them have not entered through the door. Christ is the door, obviously. Uh, they're nothing more than, than thieves and robbers, just as Jesus says here. Um, And these self-appointed shepherds continually fleece the sheep by promises of health, wealth and happiness. We see it so often. You only need to turn on Christian TV uh, and you see that. Um, And it shouldn't be a surprise, Peter tells us, of these thieves and robbers coming in. He says in uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be... False teachers among you, who shall privily bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that brought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness, they loving things, shall they um, with feigned words make merchandise of you. That's the the key there. Making merchandise of you whose judgment now of a long time lingers not and their damnation slumbers not. We have people in the church that set themselves up as shepherds of the sheep. They've not come through the door. Okay? And they're just making merchandise. They're thieves and they're robbers. They're the ones that say, you know, that you can... Get one of these miracle wallets. You send in £10 and they'll send you a miracle wallet that will give you all the money you ever need. My question is why don't they just open it, take the money out, and then we don't have to send them the money? But you know, but you get so many of these things. I mean, the, you, you can buy bottled water from the Jordan and they hold it up and it's this beautiful crystal clear water. I've been to the Jordan, it's not clear water, it's muddy. But there are so many that we see that will make, try and make merchandise. And these are those that have um, come in some other way. They've climbed into the sheepfold. Um, they're not the ones that have come through the door. The, the mandate for those that are shepherds is really given to us in First Peter. In fact, there's various places in the New Testament. Um, Peter says, First Peter chapter 5, The elders which are among you I exalt. Uh, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Look what he says. Feed the flock of God. That is the mandate for those who would be shepherds looking after the sheep. That's their job. Uh, Which is among you taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock, And when the chief shepherd shall appear, he shall receive, or so you shall receive a crown of glory that fades not away. It's incredible that we've got people in the church, and um, Sim and I were talking about this on the way down today. We've got a minister in our town who can remain nameless, um, but recently made a a statement to his congregation that it's not his responsibility to teach them from the Bible. That's their job if they want to find out at home. Not quite sure he went on to explain what his job is, uh, although I understand that his golf swing is getting better. I probably shouldn't have said that, although I think that's true. Um, You know, we've got so many people that are just not doing that which shepherds are supposed to do, which is to teach and to feed the flock. That is the job of shepherds. What did Jesus say to Peter? Feed my sheep. That was the responsibility. Notice also, verse 3 of what we just looked at there, um, to him, okay, so those that enter by the door, to him the porter openeth now who's the porter? well in, in a type here we're dealing with the, the Holy Spirit he's the one that enables access to the sheepfold and then enables the, the under shepherds if you like uh, to use that term um, to work with the sheep but you see the under shepherds responsibility is not to get the sheep to know their own voice but get them to know the chief shepherd's voice and that's what all those that are shepherds within a, uh, a church environment uh, should be aiming for Verse 4, and when he put forth uh, his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger they will not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. This parable spoke Jesus unto them, but they understood not what things uh, they were which he spoke unto them. Okay, just a couple of uh, points to bring out here. We're told that they know his voice. Sadly... This is really the way uh, it should be that they know his voice. They don't follow strangers, but very often it's not the way it is. You see, we must know the voice of our shepherd, but there are so many people in the church today that do not know the voice of the shepherd. They don't know the word of God. That is his voice that we have. Um, And therefore, they end up following strangers. And that's why we have so many issues, so many things creeping into the church and people being led astray on all sorts of weird and wonderful programs and man-centered schemes um, because there are other voices out there. And it's so, so important that as sheep, we get to recognize the voice of the shepherd. Um, I was talking to somebody recently, uh, was just commenting on in Israel, you can have various shepherds on a hillside and one of the shepherds amongst the group of them will call and his own sheep will immediately go and follow the others won't but his own sheep they're so familiar with that voice what a beautiful picture of the way it should be for us notice jesus says or we have recorded for us by john that this parable spake jesus unto them so this is a parable now what is the purpose of parables, if you like, well, it's kind of really given to us in Matthew 13. It helps us to understand that which we've just been looking at. Verse 13 of Matthew 13 starts. He says, "Jesus says, therefore, speak I to them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing sorry, and they hear sorry, and hearing they hear not. Neither do they understand." Now. Often in our Sunday school classes, you know, parables are given as a nice little story to help us understand things. That's not why they were given. Jesus says they were here given, in a sense, to confuse people, to to say something in a way that the regular people would not understand, but his own would. And verse 16 says, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. And then he says, verse 17, For verily I say unto you, that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which you see. And have not seen them, and to hear those scenes which you hear and have not heard them. Well, what was it that was hidden in the Old Testament that's revealed in the New? It's the mystery of the church. And that's what Paul deals for us in the book of Ephesians that the church was this mystery that was hidden. And really, parables, if you look at them all, they all speak of the mystery of the church. That's what parables actually do, um, both in the here and now and also looking forward. So that which we've just been looking at, this parable, is again looking at the church, looking at this whole issue with the shepherds that will be over the flock. Those, to the two types, those that kind of sneak in some other way that don't come through the door, and those that do come through the door, which are let in by the porter, as it were. Okay. Verse 7 to 10, we're now going to change slightly. We're actually going to now focus on the sheep. So we've been looking at the, those that have responsibility over the sheep. We're now going to look at the sheep and how they are to enter. Then said Jesus unto them again, Verily, verily I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. Okay? So the sheep, if they're true sheep, can only come through the door, only come in through Jesus. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved, and shall go out, shall shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life. And that they might have it more abundantly okay all other paths to god if you like will only steal from us kill and destroy but in christ we have a life uh, that we can live in its fullness the way god intended that's what really god is saying here just an interesting aside as well in nehemiah chapter 3 there's 10 gates that are mentioned uh, only one of those gates doesn't have any locks or bars on it okay in other words it's open and there's free access and that is the sheep gate just interesting Jesus talks here about his sheep having this freedom to come in and to go out uh, those that are his his sheep and again the whole idea there that Jesus came to give us that abundant life verse 11 Jesus says I am the good shepherd the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep and again in just saying that Jesus is contrasting um, that he's the good shepherd but there's another shepherd just uh, very quickly before we look through the rest of those verses there it's interesting, the first uh, shepherd we find mentioned in Scripture is Abel, uh, back in the book of Genesis. He was a keeper of sheep, and it's interesting that no, he was slain by wicked hands. Uh, you see some types here, obviously. Jacob, his responsibility was to care for the flock. Uh, Joseph, another shepherd, and the first thing he recorded was he was feeding the flock. Uh, Moses, again, he watered, protected, and guarded. All these, you see, are types of Christ. David he actually jeopardized his own life for the sheep Uh, interestingly though the sixth one we have the idle shepherd mentioned in Zechariah uh, happens to be six on the list Uh, make of it what you will Um, referring to someone who is yet to come Um, we would refer to as the Antichrist um, but referred to in Zechariah 11 as the idle shepherd Uh, and then obviously we have Christ um, the good shepherd uh, if you like number seven there so again, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But he that is a hireling and not the shepherd, whose own sheep are not, seeth the, the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches them and scatters the sheep. The hireling flees because he's a hireling and cares not for the sheep. <laughs> you know, the hireling has no natural uh, affiliation with them. And we see this in churches today. There are so many that are in that position of supposedly being shepherds, but they're just hirelings. You know, they're paid a salary, so they'll do whatever they have to do to keep the sheep happy. That's all they're really interested in. Really, the sheep are dictating. Uh, and incredibly, in many churches, it's the sheep decide which shepherd they're going to have. If they don't like the shepherd, they vote their shepherd out and they get another shepherd in. And I, I've seen that happen many times. You know, it's an incredible state of affairs. But again, it's exactly what the Bible said would happen. In two Timothy four verses three and four For the time will come when they okay, will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust they shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and be turned unto fables. That's exactly what's happening. We've got hirelings brought in. They don't really care for the sheep. Things go wrong, so they leave, they move on you know many many denominations will have ministers that every three years or so will move on i was actually told by one the reason that they tend to do that is because after three years they've kind of gone through all their sermons they've run out of things to say <laughs> right. yeah well we've got 66 books that will keep us going for a while verse 14 i am the good shepherd i know my sheep and am known of mine See, sheep know the shepherd because they know his voice, as I was saying earlier. Um, again, we must not walk by sight. Um, 2 Corinthians 5, 7 is a reference for that. There's an interesting uh, example of this in John chapter 20. We'll get there uh, eventually in our study. Uh, but with Mary, as Mary is there at the tomb. Um, she sees this person who she assumed by sight is the gardener. What is it that changes her mind? He speaks. It's his voice. She knows his voice. She recognizes his voice. Don't be fooled by going on what we can see, the, the natural, if you like. Um, people have often said that, that, that God's favorite instrument is the ears, or Satan's favorite instrument is the eyes. Uh, and we need to be very cautious that we don't walk by sight, that we need to walk by faith. And again, specifically, uh, knowing uh, the voice of the Lord in Romans ten seventeen tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Verse 15, as the Father knows me, even so know I the Father, and lay down my life for the sheep. This is quite interesting because for those who are listening at this point, Jesus is starting to actually reveal more of his mission and his purpose. This is the first time Jesus has so clearly said that his role is to come and lay down his life for the sheep. And then notice what he says. Uh, also uh, that he lays his life down for the sheep, you know the question is asked, you know was it the Jews that put Jesus' to death, was it the Romans? you know Jesus says he laid his own life down, and uh, verse sixteen, other sheep I have which are not of this fold, what fold is he talking about well israel that 's where he was that's where he'd gone to speak to. He come to speak to the house of Israel, um, and he says, "Other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also must I bring, and they shall hear my voice." notice and there shall be one fold and one shepherd well from that alone you could conclude therefore that god has not finished with israel because there are sheep that he's come to speak to there are other sheep he's going to bring them together and he's going to have one fold okay verse 17 therefore doth my father love me because i lay down my life that i might take it again okay there's that that phrase therefore does my father love me it's just down uh, if you like to that obedience uh, no one took jesus life as i said he gave it willingly in obedience to his father no man takes it from me but i lay it down of myself i have power to lay it down and i have power to take it again this commandment i have re- uh, have i received from my father verse 19 there was a division therefore again among the jews for these sayings and many of them said he has a devil and he's mad why hear you him? Others said, These are not the words of him that is a devil. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? And it was Jerusalem, the feast of dedication, and it was winter. Just thrown in there by, by John for us. Now, many people think, as I said earlier, that um, we jump three months on from chapter 9. That's because they assume that verse, that 20, verse 22 is saying that that which we've just looked at Is now there. If you remember, we're at the Feast of Tabernacles in uh, chapter 8, so going into chapter 9 and so on. Um, Other people think that we're now starting, that this is the jump, the three months. It's kind of irrelevant, but if you want to have a chronology of it, uh, it's one of those things that you need to try and figure out what you think. As I say, it doesn't really make any real difference. But just to mention, because we have here mentioned for us uh, the Feast of Dedication in the wintertime. Well, this is um, what we often. Referred to as Hanukkah or the Festival of Lights, this this uh, other feast. It's not one of the the Mosaic feasts of seven feasts given by Moses, uh, detailed for us uh, in Leviticus 23 specifically. Um, this is an additional feast that was added around about 167 BC. As I mentioned earlier, Israel had become the buffer state between the Seleucid and the Ptolemaic empires. Now, they were two of the arms of what was Alexander the Great's kingdom. It split into four sections, and these had become really the two powerhouses, uh, and we have in a sense if you imagine you've got Syria covering one of the areas and a bit wider uh, and then you've got Egypt uh, down the bottom part uh, and there was this constant battle and this trading of power between these two empires and Israel sit right in the middle of it uh, if you want details of it it's in the book of Daniel um, but this character Antiochus Epiphany also known as Antiochus the Fourth, was on his way up from a battle down in Egypt way back up and he stops at Jerusalem and uh, wants to, to be the big shot there the Jews rebel. Uh, we have what is historically known as the Maccabean Revolt. Um, as a result of this, um, because the Jews resisted, uh, Antiochus then desecrated the temple. Uh, he was so outraged that people would you know, stand up against him after who, who were the Jews. Um, and so he desecrates the temple. He, he sacrifices the pig on the altar uh, and so on. But after a while, um, Judas Maccabeus, his dad had started this off. He then died. Uh, Judas then goes and carries on and wins the, the battle, um, and uh, Antiochus is defeated, and they then set about cleansing the temple. Um, again, all of this is prophesied in incredible detail uh, and, uh, toward the end of the book of Daniel. Um, the temple's cleansed, but there is no oil for the menorah except one day's supply. Now, we mentioned earlier from um, the book of Leviticus that the priest's job was to keep this oil burning continually. Well, they'd run out. What were they to do? It was going to take seven days for them to make some more. So they light the one day supply they have. And miraculously, it lasts right through this period until... They actually get um, the the next lot come through, so one day supply lasts for the eight days, and that then leads on to this feast of dedication or rededication of the temple, also referred to as the festival of lights, um, because again, obviously, the, the issue with the lights. So. Um, that's the, the kind of the, the background behind that it's just interesting because Jesus mentions it here um, we haven't got time this evening uh, and I haven't actually put it in the notes for, for this time that will go up but actually one I, w- I will actually add it to the notes there is an incredibly interesting pattern that goes through um, a, um, the um, gestation cycle as it were for a baby um, the best time to conceive is the 14th day of a woman's cycle when was the Feast of Passover? Fourteenth day of the month. You go through, every one of those feasts fits perfectly at one of the major points. Feast of Trumpets occurs on the day that the hearing is developed. And it's really, really incredible. I'll put the details of that in the notes for you as well. Um, um, but interestingly, um, this happens to occur at the, the, the Festival of Lights at the, the point of birth, when the child would enter in and see light. So just little aside uh, but i'll put the details in the notes if you want to have a look at that so um, verse 23 jesus walked in the temple in solomon's porch then came the jews around about him and said unto him how long does you make us to doubt if thou be the christ tell us plainly and jesus answered and told them uh, sorry answered them i told you and you believe not the works that i do in my father's name they bear witness of me but you believe not because you are not of my sheep as i said you know the jews are saying you know come out and tell us plainly see what they were trying to do is to trap jesus into saying something that they could use to get him in trouble with the romans and jesus won't do that he won't play their game he knows what they're up to Uh, and jesus says look i've told you already you know the truth you just don't believe it and the reason you don't believe it is because you're not of my sheep see it's not a case of seeing them believing but rather it's believing that enables you to see Jesus carries on again. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all. And uh, no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. And this leads us on to that that issue of eternal security. You know the whole uh, question of can you lose your salvation? Well, look what we're told. Jesus says, I give unto them eternal life. If it's eternal. It's going to go on forever. You can't be eternal if it can be stopped at some point in the future because it's not eternal. Then Jesus says, they shall never perish. Point number two. And neither shall any man, well I'm a man, we're all part of mankind. You know, nobody's able to pluck us out of the Lord's hands. But also my Father which gave them to me. God is the one that has given them to Jesus. And again, look, no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hands. We are held in this pair of hands that are so safe. And Jesus qualifies it by saying, I and my Father are one. You know, people have this question about, can you lose your salvation? The issue really is about what qualifies salvation in the first place. People come to that point of thinking they're saved because they've given this Jesus thing a try. You know, they've put on Christ in an experimental fashion. Uh, you know, the whole, you know, Jesus is going to make your life better kind of message. And they think, well, I'll give it a go. But they've never truly repented. And this, this goes back to the parables we have in Matthew 13. And the whole issue to do with true and false conversions. Just have to throw this in. This is from Romans 8. You're probably familiar. But Jesus says, oh, sorry, Paul says there, there is no condemnation now, uh, sorry, therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. It goes on, verse 38, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is there anything that Paul missed there? I don't think so. Nothing can separate us from that love that God has for us. If we are saved, we are saved because it's not about us it's about what he has done for us it's grace you you see you had nothing to do with your salvation other than receiving it okay it's not something that you can do something and then forfeit it now there's another issue with rewards separate thing altogether just a comment here another comment by Adam Clark I thought this was quite good just commenting on that I am my father he just says if Jesus Christ were not God could he have said these words without being guilty of blasphemy It is worthy of remark that Christ does not say, I and my Father, which my, our translations improperly, supplies, in other words, that's been inserted in for us, and which in this place would have conveyed a widely different meaning. Um, For then it would imply that the human nature of Christ, uh, of which alone I conceive God is ever said to be the Father in Scripture, uh, was equal to the Most High. But he says, speaking then as God over all, I and the Father, um, the creator of all things, the judge of all men, the Father of all spirits, of all flesh, are one. One in nature, one in all attributes of Godhead, one in all the operations of those attributes. And so it is evident the Jews understood him. what he's saying there, if you didn't quite get that, is that what Jesus is saying here, that he is one with God. Okay, he's putting himself as God, no, no debate over it. And the Jews clearly understand that because we, re, we then go on the next verse. It just says, Then the Jews took up stones uh, again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work um, we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. There was no question they knew that Jesus was declaring himself God. Again, those people that say Jesus never declared himself God have never really gone through this gospel as we've seen time and time again. Jesus answered them, "Uh, Is it not written in your law that I said ye are gods? If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him, talking of himself, whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest because I said, I am the Son of God. Let me uh, read another comment by Adam Clark's. I think it just unravels that a little bit for us because uh, sometimes it's not the easiest portion to understand. His uh, paraphrase of that is this. If those were termed gods who were only earthly magistrates, and that's who Jesus was referring to. He's quoting back to Psalm 82. Again, if those were termed gods who were only earthly magistrates, fallible mortals, and had no particular influence of the divine spirit, and that they are termed gods is evident from the scripture which cannot be broken or set aside what greater reason then have i jesus to say i am the son of god and one with god when as messiah i have been consecrated sent into the world to instruct and save men and when as god i have performed miracles which could be performed by no power less than that of omnipotence I, again, I think it just, just highlights what we just, what Jesus is just saying there. You know, that he's saying, look, you, know, you even call your magistrates and things, you use that title, but if that's used of them, how much more so of me? If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though you believe not me, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Okay, therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hands. Again, my paraphrase of that is that if the works that i have done do not demonstrate a supernatural ability that only god could do then don't believe me but if the works demonstrate that god is at work in your midst even though you don't want to believe me accept it on the basis of the miracles so that or in order that you may know again by believing you will see that the father is in me and i in him that's what jesus is saying to them And again, 39, therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand. I just want to highlight this because this is something that we'll be looking at in detail next time. Could you imagine a situation where you've got people as enraged now as these Jews are because of these things that Jesus is saying, and they want to to take hold of him. They they want to kill him there and then. They sought to take him. That wasn't just some kind of half-hearted thing. They really, really did want to take him. But he escaped out of their hands. We're not told how he escaped, but all through John's Gospel now, we've been seeing time and time again that Jesus just seemed to slip away and they couldn't touch him. You know, the miracles again, Jesus would do a miracle and he'd say, don't tell them who's done it. All the way through John's Gospel, we've seen it building up to a crescendo that we'll be dealing with when we get to chapter 12 next time. And said, and this is obviously Jesus, and went away again beyond Jordan into the place where John at first baptized and there he abode. And many resorted unto him and said, uh, John did no miracle, but all things that John spoke of this man were true. See, John had testified. We've seen that earlier on in the gospel. John had provided witness, testifying to who Jesus was. And the people are now saying, well, look, this is what John said this man would do. And he's doing it. And verse 42, and many believed on him there. Okay, so that brings us to to the end this evening. Homework is to read chapter 11 and 12. Chapter 12 is a fantastic, both chapters are, but chapter 12 is such an important chapter in kind of gluing Christ's ministry together. It makes sense of all those strange things that we've seen going through where Jesus wouldn't allow himself to be called the Messiah or to be hailed as king. The feeding of the 5,000, they wanted to make him king and he wouldn't let them. We're going to see why in chapter 12. Let's... uh, our hearts now for a word of prayer well father we thank you for your word we thank you lord that though we were blind lord you've caused us to see and father we don't know how you've done it we don't need to know how we just need to know that we were blind and now we see and that's all we need lord just to testify to the great work you've done and lord we pray that we would be lights that are burning brightly for you burning continually Father, we pray that you would indeed trim those wicks if we're not burning bright enough. And Lord, although that could be a painful process, Lord, we know that it's all part of what you're doing to make us what you want to be for your glory. Father, we pray, Lord, for the work you've assigned each one of us to do. And Father, we pray you give us strength, you give us wisdom. And Lord, you help us to be obedient to you in all things. Father, help us as your sheep. To learn to know your voice. Lord whatever the circumstances around us. Lord so that we won't follow the voice of a stranger. But that Lord we will follow you. Wherever you lead us. We thank you Lord that you are indeed the chief shepherd. And Lord we thank you that you've called us. To be your own. And Lord be with us as we go from here this evening. Keep us safe Lord. Keep us close to you. And Lord bring us back safely next time we ask. And just, just keep us growing. In the knowledge and in the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus, for it's in his name we ask. Amen.